Good evening, everybody. Um, good evening, everyone, and welcome to ACCA. Um, I believe there are still a few chairs on this um, uh, north side of the foyer if um, people need some extra chairs. So um, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to ACCA. My name is Max Delaney and it's a great pleasure to welcome you this evening to tonight's book launch and talk exploring the place of, creative, of the creative arts in the future of the academy and the challenges of art practice and education in relationship to academic research. Tonight we launched Danny Butt's latest book, Artistic Research in the Future Academy, published by Intellect 2017, which reconceptualises the contemporary crisis in university education towards a valuable renewal of creative research. I'd like to acknowledge the Boon sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and pay our respects to elders past and present, and to all First Nations who join us this evening. It's a great pleasure to welcome Danny Butt, and to congratulate him on the publication of his timely book. Danny is a member of the Art Collective Local Time and coordinates the Master of Arts and Community Practice at the Victorian College of the Arts at the University of Melbourne. And we're delighted to present uh, in collaboration with colleagues at the University of Melbourne this evening's event. Um, and thank you very much for joining us. Danny is also research associate in the Research Unit for Public Cultures, directed by Nikos Papasiadis in the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. And we're delighted that Nikos is able to join us as well to offer his insights on Danny's book and ideas around knowledge production. Danny and Nikos will be joined by Professor Barbara Bolt, artist and theorist and Associate Dean Research in the Faculty of the VCA and MCM. And also Professor Ashok Mathur, a writer, culture organizer and interdisciplinary artist an incoming Dean of Graduate Studies at OCAD University in Toronto. So without further ado, please welcome Nikos Papasiadis to commence proceedings. Thanks, Ruth. <laughs> Always feel welcome when you're around. Um, it is indeed a great honour to be part of this event, and it's an important milestone, not just in one individual man's career, but also a kind of key moment in the way in which we think about art and research. And it's certainly a major publication in that field. But let me begin by taking us back to 1977. Darling, you, you're still to be born. The world's not ready for you. But hopefully by the end of tonight, we'll have got a little bit closer to that moment. But 1977 was when Gustav Metzger <coughs> announced that he was not going to make art for three years. What a prescient decision that was. Because a year late, two years later, Margaret Thatcher came to power, and that's the beginning of Thatcherism, or what we now know as neoliberalism. By the end of that three-year period, the Sachin Sachi company had become the world's biggest advertising company and also the most influential collectors of art. There's even a term called the Sachification of art. So everything we know about precarity, everything we know about neoliberalism, everything we know about the commodification of, of contemporary art really begins in this moment. And it's preceded by one artist saying, I refuse 
to participate in this chain of production of art works. What I will do with my time, says Metzger, is do research. He wasn't trying to do a PhD in three years. He was working in the mind and in through the text and through other means. Now, I want to sort of contrast that and think about that model and the way in which this artist was trying to redefine both the significance of art at that particular time and the paradigm of knowledge that the artist produces at that particular moment. Because he wasn't doing research so that he could become a more productive artist. He wasn't doing research so he could lever himself into the academy. And in a sense, all his artwork was always informed by research. So what was it that he was doing that was different? Let's go to Brisbane, 2017, and I happened to be in a panel with the CEO of the Australian Research Council, a Professor Aidan Byrne, who is a distinguished physicist and no fool by any stretch of the imagination. But he has a deep problem. I would say not just a problem, but is symptomatic of this disease, this symptom, this virus, this bacteria, I don't know what we can call it, but is the persistence of stereotypes despite the antibodies being circulated. The stereotype of what artist is and artists do and what is the contribution that art makes to knowledge. The stereotype that he's stuck with is the stereotype that artists make work through practice. You practice your bees until you get them right, then you get in the symphony. Mastery is achieved through mimicry, repetition, and an execution within a confined parameter. For him, that's what artistic practice is. But he says, we're a university. And in fact, a research-based university. Practice and research are incommensurable. They don't fit. We research in order to find something new. You guys do practice in order to perfect something that's old. No amount of discussion that the idea of perfection and innovation and research and tr transforming these paradigms has occurred for over 50 years in the artist's context seemed to budge him from his corner. But it's a powerful problem that confronts this sector. The problem that when the CEO of the major funding body sees artistic practice within that 19th century paradigm means that the way in which artists can compete for the funds that he is responsible for allocating means that you are forever stuck in a catch-up game. You are forever having to speak in a way that's contrary to your so-called principles and outside and against the principles that he sees as dominating the whole research base. It's like a scientist and a theologian talking but realising that they're talking in different languages even if they're speaking in English. The, the world system that they operate is incommensurable. And so what it means is that we have to somehow constantly 
validate and calibrate our behaviour according to criteria and categories that don't fit with what it is that we do. Now, we could do some of that a bit better, I would say. We could, in fact, be a little bit more generous how we cite each other, for instance. You know, an average article in a magazine or a journal written by an anthropologist will have 50 or 60 citations. That's 50 or 60 people who have been recognised as contributing to that piece. Average article in one of Max's catalogues that are on these shelves will have five citations. That's 45 people who have been left out. <laughs> no disrespect to you, Max, of course, you cite everyone fulsomely and handsomely. But you know what I mean. We are still obsessed with this idea that we have had the idea and the idea needs to be jealously guarded and protected and sometimes we're a, bit, a little bit ungenerous in acknowledging the path that got us to that idea. Because that would be rather boring sometimes and it would also be counterproductive. But nevertheless, it undermines the capacity for people like Sue, who've, who's had this position in, in previous lives, to be in a position of having to contest and define and de demonstrate the value of art according to those criteria. Now, that's a catch-up game I suspect we'll never win. The beauty of this book is that it says, beyond trying to catch up, there are other pathways. There are other ways to try and be in the sphere of con contributing to knowledge. Those other pathways aren't just simply playing according to the rules set by the others, or retreating into some fantasy world before those rules were brought into place, because one is impossible and the other one was never possible, right? There must be a third path. And so what I want to do is spend a little bit of time seeing what would that third path be like. One thing is beautiful about writing a book is the kind of agency you have as an author. I know it's agonizing and, it, and right now, I know Danny's probably saying, I'll never do it again. But there is a kind of freedom that the writer has that an artist who works in collaboration with an institution like this doesn't have. If an artist is confronted by an obstacle, which is to do with their infrastructure, and if Max is confronted by issues to do with resources, there can be a serious deadlock. Because in some ways, Running an institution like this is like driving a train on tracks. Once an obstacle presents itself in front of you, most of the time, that's the end of the road. You know, that's the end of the road. Writing a book is a little bit different. It's more like driving a four-wheel drive. Of course, you need a few roads every now and then, a map, certainly but you can dodge and, and steer around obstacles and keep going. You have the capacity to keep going when in, th in other moments things fall apart or become too difficult to get over. You go around or under. Now that option, of course, is something that we're increasingly becoming more conscious of, it, of, the, of the politics. I mean, today everyone's talking about still Harvey Weinstein and, and the way in which directors abuse their power. Of course, there's the sexist 
abominations that are there, but also there's the issue about their capacity to say yes and no. And once a, a producer says no, the writer, director, actor is really powerless, but this kind of writer that we're talking about is not powerless. There is still agency to challenge, confront, bypass, undermine the status quo. And that, I think, is an important issue because we still have this capacity to keep moving. And in that moment, I would like to say just one thing about the character of the author. It's a bit embarrassing. I'm sorry, but I feel obliged to say this because the presence of so many people is already testament to this. I'm sure everybody in this room who has known or who in particular has worked with Danny Butt will know that he has a lot of knowledge. Everybody will also know how creative and aesthetic as an individual he is. And everyone will also know what a profoundly ethical man he is. When you combine that knowledge, aesthetics, and ethics, you get a man with wisdom. It's a very old-fashioned term, and I'm not sure it's used these days in an academic vocabulary, but I'm very proud to say that I've learned a lot from Danny through his example, through his very carefully considered words, through the coolness of his silence and the warmth of his engagement with life and issues that you are confronted. So it's with great pleasure that I take this opportunity to launch, be part of this launch of this book, and to also talk about the issues that he cares so much about. Because art is caught with, on these thorns that are constituted often by these persistent and residual stereotypes and cliches. And there are the cliches of the artists who are always talking about each other as if they were footnotes in a chain of references, as if they were talking about each other along a long line of reviews where there's a very discursive set of associations but in effect, when they're talking to each other in that way, they are talking really to the space between each other rather than to each other. And then there are artists who proclaim for themselves a kind of splendid isolation. There's a you know, beautiful um, place in the south of France that was established by a postman called Facteur Cheval where he would, on his daily walks around the villages, he would pick up stones and shards of glass and things, and then assemble all the temples of the, wor of the world that he saw on the postcards that he delivered to people's houses. Now, he built these completely naive and romantic versions of the Taj Mahal, of the Acropolis, all in his backyard. And he had this kind of crude and beautiful and completely kitschy vision of the glories of civilization. 
the Surrealists discovered him and celebrated him, and he became this sort of icon. But in his lifetime, he didn't see himself as an artist. He never asked for sponsorship or funding, nor did he try to sell anything. He just lived in this sort of zone of exemption. So we have these two kind of stereotypes of artists, ones who are forever comparing themselves along a long history of ref artistic references and really getting stuck in, the, in this sort of crevasses in between, and this other one who is building this sort of fantasy world in a zone of exemption. Now, with this kind of discussion that we now have before us about artistic research and the future of the academy, we have this opportunity to go beyond that, to go beyond those two choices and to think about alternative pathways for what is good about art and what is the role about research. I've already given the example of Gustav Metzger and his commitment to research. Now, research can justify or redeem bad work and it can seem obsolete and irrelevant in very good work. But the fact is, it's in all work. Nothing happens without research. And what I think Danny has shown us very vividly and very powerfully is that whether it's obsolete or, very, or whether it's simply performing the function of justification, research is intrinsic to creative production. And this form of creative production that needs to be understood today cannot be understood outside of the context of both politics and economics. So we can't retreat into a lovely ideal state where we're separate and immune from the real world, nor are we going to simply subordinate and submit ourselves to the dirty dollar either. Some complex negotiation needs to be managed between these two and some insistence that we're doing something as if it's possible, even if we know it's not. And the importance of that phrase, as if, which Danny uses in his conclusion, which he draws from Derrida, is absolutely vital because by performing the possibility, henceforth comes the reality. Thank you and congratulations, Danny. Um, thank you, Nikos. It's uh, you know, for a most humbling and uh, enlightening introduction. Uh, and of course, as usual, uh, coming to speak next after Nikos uh, is, uh, is something that fill, fills one with fear. Uh, but also, you know, because you know, it is always kind of inspiring. I think, kind of um, uh, listening listening to you talk and, uh, you know, when I moved from Auckland uh, to Victoria with uh, my partner Ruth in 2013 and was fortunate to work at the research unit in public cultures, which Nikos continues to lead, um, I'd always worked in art schools before this, so this was my first time in sort of the real part of the university. And, um, and uh, it was also, 
like a, a strange entry because it was actually what I thought a university was supposed to be like. Uh, there was this interdisciplinary exchange of ideas that, um, that Nikos uh, uh, was is able to convene and that's really quite out of step with contemporary research life. Uh, where, you know, in the terms of the ARC, etc., we're supposed to, you know, we're encouraged to do the same thing over and over in order to become excellent at it. And it doesn't really matter what one is excellent at as long as one is excellent and demonstrates that excellence. Uh, you know, that's all that matters. So um, my short fellowship at RUPC not only allowed me some time, but also I think gave me um, the confidence to complete the book. And uh, for that, I'm very grateful. Um, and I also acknowledge the support of um, my current home at Victorian College of the Arts, particularly our director, John Catapan, and um, predecessor, Sue Baker, um, for this event in particular, but also for their historical support of interdisciplinary practices through the, um, uh, through the late Centre for Cultural Partnerships, but also for their support of experimental teaching and learning in my own program of the Master of Arts and Community Practice. Um, great to see all you guys from that program here tonight. And, um, and yeah, where you know, some of the ideas in the book get to uh, come into reality. Uh, just also would like to thank um, Professor Barbara Bolt and Professor Ashok Mather for, for, for who will talk after this talk. Um, RUPC are also going to publish this talk or a version thereof. And, um, uh, and just to thank ACCA for hosting, uh, you know, hosting this event. Um, it feels very appropriate to be doing it alongside the show of Kata Atia. And I think um, in the space, which is really a refreshed institution, um, I think under, under, under your directorship, Max, and um, that gives me hope for the refreshment of institutions, which sometimes seems more difficult. Um, importantly, I also want to acknowledge that on this site we're on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land and pay my respects to the Boonwurrung as uh, sovereign custodians, um, along with the Wurundjeri and the Kulin Nations, and uh, to also pay my respects to First Nations uh, peoples um, and their elders, past, present and future. Um, in particular, I acknowledge the activists for First Nations self-determination who um, although they uh, don't really sort of show up in the book itself, I think I learned from them that there are, that um, as Gertrude Spivak sort of describes it, that um, an academic's only job is to not talk about things they haven't read properly and don't know properly. So I think, uh, you know, that you know that that engagement with I think um, the self you know those working for self determination has taught me a lot about um, what's an appropriate role to take in terms of engaging all of the kind of complex cultural dynamics that we're that we're involved with. So when Linda Tuhuai Smith in the second chapter of Decolonizing Methodologies takes up Foucault's diagnosis of an imperial cultural archive whose systems and rules that we're too implicated in to diagnose. Um, I think she really underwrites the entire method of the book, which is, um, you know, trying to learn how to talk about the, the you know, the, 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 the water in the goldfish bowl that we're in as fish, the things that, you know, we don't really know what's there sustaining us, but it's all around us and allows us to live. So um, in, in, a, in a lot of uh, works of history, you know, I think kind of for me doing the historical work uh, allows the future to become clearer 
and tonight I just want to give a talk about how artistic research will end. Um, and this might seem like a bit of a gloomy proposition uh, to, to have for a talk. Um, but uh, the book starts with a quote from the Nazarene painter Eberhard Wachter, who in the 19th century uh, rejected a position on the Stuttgart Academy. And he said that um, there is too much misery in art already. I've no, I've, I've no wish to increase it. Uh, and this refusal, you know, thinking about what um, Nikos was talking about before, opens a space between practice and institutionalization that I think we all feel uh, as kind of um, as practitioners who are involved in institutions in different ways, and that we all learn to navigate. And as anyone who's managed artists and particularly art school academics knows, um, that usually happens by people disavowing the institution as some kind of authority figure uh, um, and sort of refusing to engage. Um, and I, I guess I would like to, what I, I feel like I've tried to do through the book is just to try and understand how we can rethink that gap in terms of our own complicity within these institutional logics that we're all part of and not to just imagine sort of, you know, jumping out of the goldfish bowl and landing on the carpet and dying a slow death, but actually learning to live with inside this kind of environment that we are in, which is changing extremely rapidly. And, uh, and so that's what I, I would like to kind of talk through today. So I'm going to talk for, the talk runs for um, uh, hopefully half an hour just under before inviting Barb and Ashok to respond. Um, and there'll be some time for questions. Please feel free to move around and kind of you know, grab drinks from the bar and some food. Um, uh, while we're talking, the toilets are behind you. Some people don't know where those are. Um, a couple of people have asked whether the book is available tonight, and um, this is like, a, like a, a launch of a new model of car. You can't actually drive it away tonight. You just kind of get, uh, you know, you just get me talking about how great it is, uh, and, then, um, and then you can get one from your local dealership. But um, part of that problem is that the book does cost $130, so it's really for institutional kind of purchasing. However, someone has already scanned the book and uploaded it to the... Um, online platform ARG, which some of you may know of. Uh, uh, and, uh, and there's a little sort of sh uh, a slip here just at the back near the book which you can grab, which will give you a link to where you can find the book and download that if you wish to read that for free. So you can do that. And then uh, hopefully in due course, the publisher, if enough copies get bought, will make the book available at a price where you can, um, where you can buy it, you know, a bit more, a bit more reasonably. So my apologies for not being able to get a lot more books to you, but um, as I said, it is freely available there. Okay, how artistic research ends. Well, um, we know how artistic research begins, more or less, and uh, this is the sort of period that I think um, you know, uh, uh, Nikos, starting in 1977, starts to kind of put us uh, uh, towards. So the mode of specialist or scientific study in the humanities comes from Germany to the US in the 19th century, and then into the massive growth of Anglophone universities through the European colonies in the 20th century. Higher education systems become more integrated and a new managerialist culture in the late 20th century brings about this raft of research assessment regimes, uh, particularly in the 1990s, to measure the value of the research which is going on as the investment levels start to contract and come under pressure. So this is where sort of research assessment systems come from. 
um, and it's associated with the neoliberal paradigm. And as Eric Ashby described it in the 1960s, like once the university was um, cultivated as a garden flower of no more significance to the prince or bishop than the court musician, um, but the modern university is expected to be a yield-bearing crop. Uh, this is the way that, that um, you know, Ashby is talking in the 1960s here. And I think, you know, we can see that that's only kind of, you know, continued to increase. So the intellectual question of what knowledge is held in the art object or in artistic kind of research practices, um, whether, we're, whether we're thinking about kind of conceptualism or kind of post-Bauhaus practices or those many lineages that we can think about knowledge, that's just a boutique curiosity. No policymaker cares about it, as we already heard from, from Nikos. For the science policymaker, the calculus is really blunt. All research has to be assessed in order to make funding decisions in universities, but if there's an integrated bureaucratic system, they're only going to have one system to do research assessment. They're not going to have a whole bunch of them and a special one for artists. So therefore, all scholarly activity in universities becomes research regardless of whether it adheres to, to historical frameworks of knowledge or whether it's actually kind of research based in any kind of scientific sense. It just becomes research. So James Elkins often talks about this as just it, that the primary drivers here are economic, bureaucratic, and administrative, and that's essentially the story that gets dis discussed in the book, how we got to that point. But what I'm interested in right at the moment is that, um, and what seems to me have, to have changed quite a lot in the 10 years since I started the research for the book to now, is um, what, what happens if these administrative drivers have changed quite radically? You know, what happens uh, if, you know, um, new graduate programs, which were still expanding in the 2000s, certainly in the early 2000s, um, what, what, if, what if these are no longer going to continue to keep emerging? Um, what happens if existing programs are rationalised and consolidated? What if the already declining research funding from the state is no longer enough to maintain a research culture in the less lucrative disciplines such as the arts? Um, what if the government decides it can't deal with this problem and an easier option is to stop funding creative arts research entirely? What if, in other words, artistic research ends? So um, this end doesn't seem particularly unlikely to me. Of course, I don't welcome it, but, um, but I do have to say that it does seem likely it could come. And there's four potential ends for artistic research, which... Um, I think of as a cut and a cultural shift, a cramp and a coup. <laughs> so firstly, how we arrived here, um, you know, just again, to just try and give you this sort of broad narrative of, of, from the book of how we actually kind of got here. The end of the Second World War brought a social problem which was a large number of military men with nothing to do and the US government's solution was to send them to universities. Um, and that would soon be copied by other nations. So in 1944, the GI Bill of Rights sent university and college enrolment from 1.36 million students in 1939 to 2.08 million students in 1946, over one million of whom were veterans. In the 1970s, university participation also became a, a, a policy solution to youth unemployment in the, in the former British Empire during a period of economic downturn. Participation in tertiary education grew from 10 to 30% in most European countries from 1960 to 1990, where the number of students multiplied by nine. To put those figures in this sort of longer perspective, 
tertiary education participation in Europe du doubled between 1860 to 1900, but it went from just 0.46 of a student age group um, to 0.88% of, uh, of a student age group over that 40-year period. And then it doubled again to about 2% by 1940. The leading countries up the participation rate in the late 20th century from less than 10% in 1960 to 50 or more percent in by 2000. In the UK, this went from 9% to 60% of students going to university over a 40-year period. So, you know, we're not talking even about the same kind of institution in its social kind of function between 1960 and 2000. We're talking about a totally different kind of role in the economy even. So this growth in higher education brought a massive ex expansion in the opportunities to study and teach art, with now almost one million students studying visual and performing arts at post-secondary level in the US in 2012, and almost 100,000 in Australia. So just as um, art had sort of became in the 90s part of the creative economy, uh, and artists were somehow seen to be sort of naturally entrepreneurial. Art education itself is now a major industry, which is um, my employer as well. But in the 1990s, I never thought that any of my work would end up in the university system um, or considered it likely that I would work in, in, in tertiary education. Um, but I can, I can sort of see that my own example as a practitioner is sort of related to the trajectory of artistic research. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I dropped out of my undergraduate education in, um, in sociology in 1991 to move to Sydney and play in a band, um, playing people like Ian Wadley here. And, uh, and then I soon moved to New Zealand where the experimental music scene was intimately connected to the visual arts. And so that's where I became involved in the creative arts because it was something that I could learn by doing and just being part of a scene and being in it. You know, I never actually kind of formally studied it. Um, but I did have some kind of, and uh, yeah, yeah. So, so learning by doing, the, the word practice hadn't yet taken hold properly then, right? It was just like you just did things more, more or less in the early 90s. Um, um, but uh, I, I had this sort of self-education in cultural theory, and so I was writing kind of music criticism that also became art criticism uh, and publishing. And in 1992, the arrival of the World Wide Web brought a whole new status for these information processing skills that I would later understand to be research. I didn't think about them as being research at the time. Um, so then I was working in a research capacity for advertising agencies such as Saatchi and Saatchi in the, in the late 90s where I was the most professionally miserable I've ever been yeah. and, um, and then was working for UN agencies in the mid-2000s. So in my autobiographical narrative, the growth of artistic research is indistinguishable from my work in artist-run initiatives in the dot-com sector in the 1900s. These things take place at the same time. And this makes me think about artistic research as a kind of gentrification of artistic methods and the artistic imaginary. So in the research frame, rather than simply just producing something, um, your practice should aim to some kind of broader significance in a different kind of audience which is reconceived as scholarly. That's to say the audience should become elite and global. Right? That's uh, uh, um, what, what, what the research frame does, I think. Art should then propose questions and answer them through some kind of systematic method. Um, the etymology of the word method comes from the Greek, horos, a path. Um, in, a, in artistic research, one should turn a path into a road, or perhaps even a road map. 
uh, you know, where, where it kind of can create an asset that can be monetized in some larger kind of economy outside of what it, of what it is. So I think we can see here that the fortunes of artistic research also link in with this growth of um, the Biennale circuit and kind of, you know, this kind of uh, interest in inform informational and discursive practices that travel, uh, travel globally and also with the expanded economic claims for placemaking of the type that artists are involved in um, and that the large-scale exhibition involves. But that's a bit more uh, speculative. Um, but for me, these kind of, you know, the, 1990s linked, the 1990s linked these promises that were implied across artist-run initiatives, which I thought were just going to kind of keep proliferating endlessly into the future. Um, uh, new media, which was always going to kind of continue to grow, and artistic research. And all of these cases moved outside of sort of these traditional dynamics of like cultural funding, state support from the nation state, um, uh, and, they, and they started to mirror these transnational uh, flows of brands and finance. And I think what was kind of common through the university art schools during the artistic research period was this higher education policy emphasis shifts into this kind of um, growth and innovation discourse. Um, the creative industries was the one that I was sort of, I guess, most kind of involved in uh, 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 there. So, you, you know, this is where... Um, um, but, but as art schools became part of universities and there was this whole shift to this kind of economic discourse, art schools had a bit of a problem. Um, firstly, you know, what was happening at that time for other university disciplines was this transition from, Bruno Latour talks it from winning prizes to winning grants, right? You, you're, it's no longer about kind of how um, elite you are on some level uh, as much as how much money you can kind of bring in. And artistic research was never very good at bringing in large amounts of money, unlike other disciplines, such as the sciences. And um, also, uh, uh, you, know, you, you know, most artists process their own grants outside of their institutions of work, right? Because you wouldn't want the institution to take a cut of your, of your Australia Council grant, etc. Um, and also, the system of, of staffing that was in most art schools employed professionals who had no particular, I guess, um, allegiance to the institution as their mechanism of professionalization, um, their, their mechanism of kind of developing their own profession, you know, professional success was their own practice. And I think these kinds of networks weren't about building teams of graduate students who could do larger and larger bits of research for you. It was much more kind of you know, dis dislocated. So one, one solution to these problems was, um, I think, you know, the growth in doctoral programs, uh, which brings a certain scientification of knowledge in the arts. And chapter three of the book, uh, which is actually available open access, you can download it for free, talks about sort of some of the challenges, some of the challenges of that. But, yeah. Um, but, but, so, uh, but during, um, I won't go into that discussion much more because I think things have already changed from this point, right? We've moved on. Um, in, in the 19th century, theology lost its dominant uh, position as the authorizing principle of universities, and instead universities, starting with Berlin in 1810, uh, become based on the idea of science or philosophy, natural philosophy. But at the end of the 20th century, science has lost its authorizing function to finance. Um, science is no longer the dominant enterprise in the university as it was at the beginning of the artistic research debates in the 1990s. The major field of study for postgraduate students today is business and commerce, which makes up a full quarter of Australian postgraduate enrolments. 
um, which, com which compares to under 10% for the natural and physical sciences. So um, I think this shift in, in university enrollments makes a lot of sense because students are seeking this, some education in these financial principles that actually govern their life in a really severe and direct kind of way, which wasn't the case for you know, the people who set higher education policy who you know, got their education for free more or less on the public purse. Um, uh, in Australia, over the 10-year period from 2003 to 2013, the t total public student loan debt grew from 9.2 billion to 30.3 billion. Like that is just an incredible amount of money, which you know the youth of today are kind of bearing uh, through their kind of lives of work, whatever, whatever that is. So this is a different this is a different world. Marina Vishmet says that education has become one of the most highly commodified and instrumentalized sectors worldwide, and debt, slavery, and employability are the real products of most universities. So I think today, you know, it's a harsh assessment, but I think it's not an unfair, untrue assessment. Um, uh, and I think of it, university education today is sort of like an extractive industry in some respects, with the critical disciplines working as sort of social responsibility offices or something, where we try and you know, make, it, make, make the institution live up to its ideals. Um, but but this, this, this science, this, so, so this change from the scientific research paradigm from artistic research into this kind of financial paradigm doesn't come from the academic discipline of commerce or business, but it comes from, um, you know, despite these enrollment figures, it comes because finance is now the dominant governing ratio of all parts of the university's internal organization, not just the academic areas. So all of these distinctions between arts research, science research, commerce, gets rendered uh, obsolete because all of the discipline-specific research infrastructure can no longer be sustained under these conditions of extreme financialization. University research is occupied by a new generic set of operations under the ever-expanding category of overhead. Risk management, commercialization, construction and property services, intellectual property, contract management, security, insurance, service-oriented architectures, organizational reviews, stakeholder management, monitoring and compliance, occupational health and safety, space utilization charges, governance, business intelligence, portfolio management, to name but a few uh, of, of these areas. And I'm sorry for giving every university administrator a headache, headache from that list. You know them all too well, but you know this is what we're, you actually have to deal with in order to manage in the university today. Um, I think uh, there's little that's interesting to say about the growth of these new domains which were you know, barely heard of inside universities, say, you know, 30 years ago, um, except that they're impervious to academic knowledge. Like, you can't actually change them by thinking about them in an academic way. Um, they're quite often sort of bound up in external platforms that come from corporate entities that will manage your HR and training services for you or things like that. So the university is quite on the back foot in relationship to all of these areas that are growing inside the university, and I feel like it can't even gain any purchase on, on them because they're really quite they're quite slippery. Um, uh, yeah, they're quite slippery things. Uh, so I think this, but these things also structure, I think, the possibilities for a new terrain of ethical engagement with the academy, and perhaps artistic research plays a role in actually trying to engage with this new position of the academy and trying to work out what to do about it. 
And I think um, that's where, I think in the book, it seems to me that the legacies of institutional critique uh, within the kind of contemporary art have actually dealt with this question quite fundamentally, you know, like um, such as what is a roadblock versus not being a roadblock and actually getting an institution, uh, for, you know, to do something from point A to point B. So there's a great book uh, by Peter Gallison, a historian of science um, from 1985 called How Experiments End. I would really recommend it to anyone who's sort of interested in science. Um, he, his, his sort of genius gambit is to say, all these science textbooks talk about how scientists came up with ideas and then started exploring them in research. And he wants to know, why do scientists stop doing research? What happens? And what he says is that, um, Quite often, experimental practices just kind of work in a very diverse way that's quite different than the theoretical justifications for them. People have particular pieces of equipment or they're interested in doing things in a particular way and so they keep on doing them. Um, even, and, 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 but the theory starts to kind of converge at a certain point and you get a different way of just organizing how science is supposed to be done. And then people who are doing it the old way can't do it that way anymore because there's a new explanation for how things are done. So I think um, uh, and, you know, there becomes a sort of new normal. And I think we can see the, so the relevance of this for how artistic research might end. Um, academia requires that practices are placed in, into a global archive of equivalence and this is sort of, you know, like I was talking about before, it's not quite the sort of the individual's relationship with their material and subject matter that's developing the pr practice. Our, our work has to go out and be excellent in some sort of um, circulating domain of kind of, um, of, of visibility. So I, I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, and, and this artificiality of some of that frames pointed, you know, I think produced interesting new responses. But if our immediate future uh, sees a contraction of investment and opportunity in the area of artistic research, combined with an institutional logic of rationalization, which is not derived from any in, uh, academic disciplinary thinking or any concept at all, it's just happening, um, this political reality is driving a new kind of convergence for us, I think, that we're all subject to, no matter what our practices, um, that we have to try and learn how to grapple with within the institution if we want artistic research to survive. So the four kind of ways that, uh, you know, that artistic research ends, firstly and most obviously the government, fund the government funding for artistic research is going to continue to contract um, in the same fashion as for the humanities and social sciences generally. Uh, you know, we will end up, um, this is the cut, uh, tertiary education is reconfigured as a private good rather than the public good. If you want an education in humanities and social sciences, you'll pay for it yourself or the creative arts. Um, and here, knowledge-based practices, uh, you know, artistic practices might return to being the preserve of the elite. And for prestigious institutions such as, um, such as, such as my own, I think we'll be insulated from this financial shock through sort of philanthropic, you know, the philanthropic relationships that we have. Um, um, but perhaps also through the influence of large-scale international exhibitions and heavily planned seasonal programming for specific audiences, perhaps we all see artistic research start to get factored into these, you know, biennales and sort of other large-scale kind of cultural events that are kind of going on that we become sponsored by. So I, I think patronage will become, uh, in, in, you know, increasingly more important through that scenario. 
Secondly, I think we uh, are facing a decolonization and a globalization of artistic research that makes, means that it's becoming structured by quite different kind of epistemological uh, and ontological concerns because artistic research as a discipline has been you know, uh, most visible in the UK, Scandinavia, um, and the former British Empire. Um, so these are the ones that have integrated sort of research assessment into their government funding systems. Um, uh, but, that, but that was all due to nation-state funding in this sort of Humboldtian model of the university, which kind of emerges from cultural nationalism, the idea that we can, you know, develop the kind of population of the nation into some, um, you know, better national future for us. And I think uh, this really doesn't seem to be uh, quite adequate to this sort of global and post-multicultural era that we're now in. So I think there's pressure on the Euro-American frame for artistic research comes from two cultural movements, on the one hand internal to settler colonial nations like ours, the rise of indigenous and decolonial research practices asks for a recalibration of the purpose and the audience of artistic inquiry. So against this extractive model of research, which is more traditional, where um, an individual kind of goes out and discovers information and then becomes authorised to disseminate it in networks of prestige, um, I think um, the development of indigenous research explicitly formulates a community outside the academy as both the source and the agent of knowledge um, together to which the cultural worker has to learn how to apprentice themselves to in, so, in some way. And I think this means that there are entirely new audiences and review mechanisms for artistic research in that paradigm. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, from, the, from globalization, the growth in networks of Chinese language scholarship in particular, I think, points to the end of European languages as just being the dominant mode for the trans you know, transmission of knowledge as it was held in the idea of a global stock of knowledge for research for such, for such a long time. I won't go into any more detail on that because you know the rankings, they speak for themselves. Um, thirdly, the entire concept of research, I think, may turn out to bureaucratize artistic practices to the extent that they can no longer be a viable frame for artists. So here I'm not really talking about a kind of theoretical bureaucratization that you know, people like from Picasso or Duchamp or today someone like James El Elkins talk about where they're worried that if artists think of their work as research that it will make it more boring and less interesting. You know, um, and that, it's not really about the concept. More mundanely, any practice that we do inside the university today um, uh, uh, you know, it has to adhere to managerial policies and procedures that are not as artistic, that govern every part of the process from conception of the idea as intellectual property to materials handling, to marketing and branding, um, to audience interaction, to the preferred supplier of catering, uh, to, uh, uh, um, you know, to sales and economic exchange and how all of these things work. And I think uh, these constraints challenge the university as a possible space of innovation. I think many of the people I know who are ethical university administrators spend a lot of time trying to keep these spaces open against this kind of incursion of these university best practices that get mandated from above and pumped out to everyone uh, below. Uh, in Australia, a good factoid is that 10% of people work in the compliance sector, uh, you know, which uh, says something, you know, I, I know it's a global phenomenon, but it does seem like quite, quite, quite heavy here. Uh, and, and so this is a kind of a cramp in artistic research. 
Fourthly and finally, and I think recapitulating all of the above, students who've been sold into debt bondage may decide that a destruction of universities is the best way to collectively free themselves um, from the university as a creditor, because um, rest assured, the, uh, the current debt levels, which you know, have um, perhaps reasonably, we can say, less onerous terms than uh, you know, your credit card debt, we see what's happening in the US where those um, allowances about how long you're allowed to live before you start paying it back are getting ratcheted back and back, and then the debts themselves are being sold off um, in this kind of, you know, as financial kind of packages. So you can be sure that that, that money is going to have to come up at some, at some stage, and I'd have to say, if I was carrying some of those debt levels, um, destroying a university would seem like an appealing proposition to me if I was going to free myself from it. So, um, uh, and if that was the case, all of us and our research would be the first against the wall. So this would be a coup. There's, um, there's an anecdote from the research that doesn't make it in the book that comes from the late Maggie Phillips, a dance academic who, um, who did a, real, a, a series of really interesting workshops in 2009 about um, artistic research. And uh, one of the respondents talks about artistic research being a space where a discipline can consider in this truly philosophical sense its own death. Um, she says, should it come to the point where we all realize that dance is a moribund form that we should exterminate, that should be something that should come out of the academy. It's not necessarily about preserving something or endlessly extolling a particular set of aesthetic values. It's as much about interrogating and putting the discipline up to radical scrutiny. So that's why we should have PhDs in dance. I think today we could take that spirit of methodological, methodological reflection a step further and consider whether the academy itself needs to live in these new paradigms of information and knowledge in the post-internet environment. Um, one of the lessons of the book is that in the history of universities, new times bring about new institutional forms. So uh, to give two examples, Black Mountain College in the mid-20th century or University of Berlin in the 19th century didn't appear as some offshoot of a successful enterprise. They came about as an entirely new entity that was set up in a different way to deal with new relationships of knowledge and how to deal with those. Um, and because you know, the existing institutions weren't actually adapting or sort of serving the requirements of the populations. Um, in the you know, 17th and 18th centuries in Europe, the number of universities actually declined. It became more interesting for middle-class kind of families to send their kids off on the grand tour of Europe, right, rather than going to universities that were seen as bureaucratized, out of touch, not part of the scientific modern improving mindset. So institutions have to change or they die. Um, Thomas uh, Thorsten Nybom claims that the North American Research University's late 20th century success can be explained by its superior ability to adapt to the massive social, economic, scientific and political changes taking place, while the univer European University has largely been changed um, and becoming a political football. One senses that Australian universities have similarly been on the back foot and oriented towards the whims of government policy and funding, particularly when it comes to questions of artistic research. And so we have not been able to really set a course for cultural institutions through the turbulent waters of neoliberal life that we're all in. So in the book, at the, um, I don't give too many examples, but I did sort of point to the actions of the 19th Biennale of Sydney Artists Working Group as one inspirational example of artists um, uh, you know, undertaking a collaborative research practice to gain some agency into these seemingly overwhelming um, political and economic forces that structure practices today, such as, you know, the investment of companies in mandatory detention. 
Um, perhaps it's through critical engagement with these larger transformations in our institutions that artistic research can point to new modes of survival after this first era of artistic research ends. Thanks. Bob who, needs, Bob, who needs no introduction. Thank you. Thank you, Danny, and thank you, Nikos. Um, inspiring. Um, I, I want to start, and I want to thank Danny so much for actually offering me the opportunity to respond to this critical work on artistic research in the Future Academy. Uh, I say critical in two senses. Is that okay? Oh. Okay, that's great, thank you. I appreciate that. I say critical in two senses. Critical, firstly, because it is critical, and I think that from Danny's talk now, you have the sense of that criticality and critical because it is also such an important contribution to the discursive explosion around artistic research. And it is the proliferation of discourses that I wish to take up in, in the few minutes that I have available to me. I have to take some responsibility, I guess, for, for setting artistic research on its way into, into arrival, and I'm, here I'm using a bit of a Heideggerian term through my own thesis, my contribution to building the discourse on artistic research, and through the supervision of um, artistic research theses. And I have to say, I've had the pleasure of actually supervising 22 PH, uh, RHD supervisions um, to completion, and that's a huge responsibility. Um, and in including them, I, Simone Slee, Sarah Crowest, Julie Steele, Kim Donaldson, Carolyn Phillips, and pretty soon Hannah Bertram. You know, and so you have a responsibility to those people when you actually uh, are an RHD supervisor. While one has to take responsibility for one's part in this, one can never foresee where or how the baby will develop and whether it will prosper or fall on stony grounds. And I think, you know, Danny talks to us about the stony grounds that we're actually facing. It is in this spirit I accepted your kind, your kind um, uh, opportunity. Um, and I accepted, actually, your incitement to discourse. Um, Danny has offered us a rich, succinct, and important critical context for thinking the future of or the, exi or the exiting of artistic research. In this mixed report on artistic research, Danny has revealed the conditions that set artistic research into motion, and with that has laid out some of the constraints and discursive and material possibilities of this still emerging or dying discipline, depending on your position, but I will make my position evident in a minute. In responding to Danny, I'd like to actually turn to, like you, to, to Michel Foucault, seems to be kind of a, a useful person to turn to in relation to thinking through artistic research. And I want to look specifically about his, um, his term, incitement to discourse, um, because I think that this idea of incitement to discourse is valuable for thinking about the stakes involved in artistic research 
for both artists as artists and also artists as researchers. Foucault introduces uh, the concept of incitement to discourse in his Introduction to the History of Sexuality, Volume 1. Here he counters the once common view that sexuality was repressed through prohibition, censorship, and general silencing of dis sexual discussion. And as I'm talking about sex, you can think artistic research, okay? Um, in, to the contrary, he argues that since the 17th century, there has emerged a political, economic, and technical incitement to talk about sex that has led to a veritable proliferation or explosion of discourses on sex. Beginning with the ritual, conf the, the ritual of the confessional and the requirement that the subjects speak about their thoughts, words, and deeds, Foucault goes on to document the proliferation of discourses on sexuality in the fields of medicine, psychiatry, pedagogy, criminal justice, and social work, to which my work as a queer theorist would add um, anthropology, cultural studies, feminism, post-colonial studies, queer studies, etc., each contributing to a grid of discursive possibilities and prohibitions for the subject. But of course, as we understand, discourse has real material effects. Oh, hello, Simone. I just talked about you briefly. Um, thus, it is important to speak of the material semiotic actor. Foucault asks, why has sexuality been so widely discussed and what has been said about it? What were the effects of power generated by what was said? What are the links between these discourses, these effects of power, and the pleasures that were invested by them? What, what knowledge was formed as a result of this linkage? And I think you can see that you can substitute artistic research in that, and, and it offers pretty interesting um, perceptions. Now, some may think that talking about sex and talking about artistic research just can't be in the same room together even though it is common for the excitement of intellectual discourse to be referred to as brain sex. However, I guess with the closing of the poll on Friday, I think that's something we're, we're kind of balancing both here tonight. But it is precisely the connection I wish to make here between the incitement of discourse to sex and the proliferation of discourses that has allowed the emergence of artistic research that Danny articulates. Foucault's questioning about the proliferation of discourse, the links between discourse, the effects of power, and the pleasure and knowledge that emerge from the mechanisms of discourse are precisely applicable to artistic research in how they control and enable both ways. It is important for us just to go back for a moment in order to set the scene. We understand that Foucault's use of the term discourse differs from our everyday understanding of discourse. It describes the historically specific relations between disciplines defined as bodies of knowledge, religious, law, medicine, sociology, anthropology, philosophy, history, geography, politics, etc. So the, the relationship between bodies of knowledge and disciplinary practices. Foucault uses the term discursive formations to elaborate the categorical grid that is placed over reality by different disciplines or bodies of knowledge in order to comprehend reality. And we all know that that's, you know, that grid and what forms that grid of, that, that forms who we are as subjects. 
Each discipline and subdiscipline brings to the table certain and contestable assumptions, postulates, frameworks and methodologies in order to be able to comprehend and explain the world and being in the world. And anybody who's done methodo research methodologies with me will, will identify with that particular aspect, won't you, Julia? According to Foucault, discourse prescribes what can be thought and what can be represented, whether in writing, speaking, acting, presenting or representing. He argues that it is the historically specific relations between disciplines, bodies of knowledge and disciplinary practice that both control subjects in thought, word and action. In other words, the different disciplines codify or police, police what people can, could, can think and say about something, whether it is sex or art. And I guess that's why we call them disciplines. Thus, Alex McCool and Wendy Grace, and a nod to making sure I, I acknowledge my sources, have observed what we can imagine, let alone put into practice, is both permitted and constrained by the discursive, that is, representational possibilities at our disposal. The prevailing discursive conditions set up specific places or positions in which subjects can perform as. We can see this in relation to art, how the prevailing discursive conditions enabled through the discourses of and on art, philosophy, art history, art theory, art criticism, and critical and cultural theory, and now artistic research, provide particular conditions, places, and possibility for artists to perform as. But there is a final piece to be focused on. While there is a history of the artist-scholar, and which you've mentioned, and many artists have written and published and hence enlarged the discourse, by and large, artists have been the object of the discourses of other disciplines. The philosophers, the art historians, the art theorists, the cultural theorists, art critics, and we're very happy about them. But this question of we have been the object of other people's discourses. This raises the question, who speaks for whom? Through his careful setting out of the field, Danny has offered us a rigorous, insightful and critical analysis of the discursive conditions in play that have enabled and disciplined the emergence of artistic research. It certainly is a mixed, mixed report card for artistic research, and in it he still remains ambivalent about the contribution of the scholarly writing, the dissertation or the exegesis in artistic research. Um, and he's kind of, I think, you're ambivalent still about the contribution it makes either to the university or to the art world. And I think it's a really important question that we actually need to think. Do, does artistic research actually make an, an, a difference in, in both the university and the real world? But I'm going to beg to differ on this point. Um, because I'm not ambivalent. I mean, I think there's, you know, good and bad and indifferent, but I'm, I'm not ambivalent. Here I return to Foucault's study on sexuality and Donna Haraway's question of who speaks for, for whom. Until the 20th century, homosexuality was disciplined by the church and the law, and homosexuals and lesbians were the object of research by such disciplines as psychology, psychoanalysis, sociology, and anthropology. However, we all know our history, and in the late 60s, as a result of the agitation by second-wave feminism, um, uh, gay liberation, and the critical studies of post... Um, uh, critical studies, uh, um, uh, queer theory, that actually gays and lesbians found a space for their own voice. 
In other words, in this discursive explosion, I think that, um, that we no longer were the objects of study, but were subjects who were generating their own discourse. This certainly and critically has contributed to the proliferation of discourses about sexuality. Likewise, I think artistic research has opened up the possibility for artists to find a subject position in a discursive field where hitherto they have been the object of study by the arbiters of discourses around art. Art historians, critics, curators, art theorists, etc. Adding to the multiplicity of their voices, their role is not to describe their work, not to interpret the work, but rather to recognise and map the ruptures and movements that happen through the work in a way that's not necessarily or even open to other, to the other areas. So this finally brings me back to the contribution that Danny has made to the field. Danny has disciplinary training in art and design and cultural theory. He is a musician and has worked as an arts administrator as well as an educator in art and design and art and cultural practice. It's this movement between the inter inter sorry, interstices between and through disciplines that has allowed Danny to exp expand the discourses beyond its boundaries and, I believe, to incite us to more discourse. So, Danny, thank you for the incitement to discourse. I appreciated it very much. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> That's quite amazing. Um, my name's Ashok. I'm uh, visiting here from Canada. I want to begin by, uh, by thanking uh, Nikos for that wonderful uh, and warm introduction. Um, Danny for being able to, uh, I think, distill this, this powerful book into a 30-minute presentation and take it into new directions. And, uh, and Barb, that was a wonderful uh, and, for me, life-saving uh, response because it means I don't have to do that kind of work and I won't be able to. Um, <clears throat> Someone asked me just before, one of Danny's colleagues asked me uh, uh, what I was doing here. He said, surely you didn't come here just to be part of Danny's launch. And I said, well, I kind of did, you know. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what brought me here. Um, but I'm also undertaking a new role in, uh, in the Canadian Academy, which, uh, which I'll speak about briefly in a moment. But first, I want to I talk about um, uh, the deep and, and incredible importance of... Uh, indigenous land, practice, and culture. Uh, every time I come to Australia, uh, I'm moved by, uh, I realize I'm coming through colonial gateways, but I'm, I'm, I'm walking into an indigenous territories, and I, I, I deeply acknowledge and appreciate that, and I don't mean just the space that we're on here in, 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 in this territory, but, but across the continent, and I, 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 I value that uh, more than I can actually say, and I'm going to end with that in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a story, uh, if I could. I'm, I'm currently living, uh, or I've just moved from uh, Okanagan Territory, uh, which is the Silic-speaking people, the interior Salish, uh, where I've worked for the last three and a half years, and I talk about being a, an uninvited guest in, in that space, uh, working with incredible scholars and thinkers who are practicing art in a way that uh, is deeply informed by history and research. So I, I want to recognize and, and, and speak to that because that to me uh, is the heart of uh, 
where we're going to go with uh, the future of, uh, of the work that Danny has introduced us to. I also want to talk about another community um, that's often not talked about in tandem with the uh, indigenous spaces, and those are uh, the racialized communities, the uh, migrants, the refugee communities, the people who are also uh, in many ways uninvited uh, into colonial spaces. And recognizing those histories of indentureship, uh, of slavery, and otherwise surviving colonial enterprise. Uh, so I talk about bodies like mine, but I talk about bodies that don't have that same opportunity too. And, and if we are going to talk about the future of, of the academy, if we're going to talk about artistic research, those are going to be first and foremost on, on our minds. And, uh, and I think that's something uh, that, I, that is necessary uh, and an imperative of a starting point. So I'm glad that it's been addressed and talked about. And I think we need to continue with that. <clears throat> so what do I have to say about Danny's work? Well, uh, I've been living with it for the last uh, few weeks, uh, traveling to various places, on planes, on trains, uh, in bed, uh, reading the proofs of it. I was joking with Danny, looking at the numbers alongside and just trying to follow along that. So on line 36 on page 22, it says this. I wasn't sure what to say, and I thought I was going to try and distill it into uh, to just a tweet. I thought that would do it. I wanted to sound very presidential apart from that, but uh, <laughs> uh, talk about the, uh, the, you know, the fake future academy. Uh, but then I realized what I wanted to do was, uh, was, was really land on a, a point that Danny talks about, which is the idea of the coup. <clears throat> I don't think it's the type of coup uh, alone that is the student resistance uh, against uh, the, the, the debt incurred by neoliberal enterprise. It, it's a coup about the systems that are, we've inherited uh, and we don't necessarily want. And there are ways and means through, through which artistic research, I think, can be uh, a conduit to that. Uh, I recognize the danger. I, I see how this can be institutionalized so readily. The, the, the ways that uh, uh, our, our colonial histories and heritages allow, uh, allow those things to be absorbed so quickly and manifested in a different way. And, and I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how we can resist and actually create spaces and I encourage us to look around uh, the space here and see who's not here, right? And so how do we change that? And how do we make those voices important? Not just important, but primary, okay? And to me, that this is, this is the, the, the point that I, I want to, to let myself rest on. <clears throat> I'm gonna tell a very brief story by, by way of concluding this. Uh, it's a story of research, of artistic research. It's about the land, it's about uh, uh, love and accompaniment. Um, and in order to introduce that, I, I want to say something. I, I met Danny many, many years ago um, when I was bringing a number of artists together to think through what it meant to be part of a nation, what it meant to be part of a nation within a nation, challenging those spaces. And uh, uh, along with Danny, met people like Natalie Robertson and Hemi McGregor, and it was really a wonderful time to bring people together. Uh, but what I noticed at that point, uh, having people like uh, one of my mentors, Shirley Bear, Maliseet Elder from the East Coast of Canada, was the, the, none of this work can be done without care, compassion, and a great deal of love. And what that means is the type of hosting that I'm, I'm, I'm 
I've learned from from so many of my colleagues here. And to that end, I'm, I'm you know, wonderfully hosted here. Danny's been doing a wonderful job of bringing me around, spending time with Ruth, as, as always, uh, them putting me up. This is an important factor, and it's not just a gesture towards uh, you know, thank you for, for everything that's been done. That is the element and the, 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 uh, the, the guts of what, what we're doing here. So I will finish then with a, a story of artistic research. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, and together we hold uh, one of those wonderful grants, uh, the equivalent of the uh, uh, Australian Research Council in, in Canada, uh, a grant that, that is looking to how the land itself can be uh, a respondent to the work that we're doing. So I'm working with a, a Taltan performance artist. Um, some of you have met him, Peter, Peter Morin. Uh, we've got Leoli back there. He was just, uh, just out in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Canada where we did a summer indigenous residency. Uh, Peter's uh, from the Taltan Nation, which is uh, uh, on the west coast of, uh, of, uh, of Canada to the north. So in order to do this work, we, we drove from where I am, which is in Kelowna, which is just west of Vancouver, we drove about 20 hours north. So during that time, we're thinking, we're talking, we're listening to music, we're thinking about what type of work we're going to do on this land. Uh, his cousin, as a guide, took us out on the land, onto Taltan territory. Uh, we spent time in the, the, uh, these historical fishing villages where people are drying fish every, every summer. Uh, and we went on these long walks uh, onto the land. And in one of these walks, Peter had brought a book of uh, Taltan history, uh, including a lot of photographs of Taltan elders. And uh, some of the people he recognized, his grandparents, some of them uh, his, his guide recognized. And, and he, started to do, he started to do this. He started to, uh, on, on top of this hill, we're having our lunch, and he started to tear out you know, these, these pages, you know, of, and he started to leave these images of elders there. And then we picked them up and we took them to the trees and to the bush and we started to peg them up there, right? So these, imagine this, these pictures of these, these, these elderly indigenous folks coming back into the land that was theirs. Now these are people who survived residential schools, who survived colonial practices. How does art bring them back into that space? And it, it did it through the only way we could imagine, which was for Peter and Curtis, uh, myself, and Kathleen, who's, who's Peter's sister, saying to the land, um, we are bringing our forebears back, back into this space. Because you have to be the witness of, uh, of these people. You have to be the witness. And, and these, are, these are the voices and the spaces that are going to be there. Now, I, I tell that story um, not, not lightly, because it's, uh, to me it's, it was a profound and moving time. Uh, we're all at or near tears, and I think unless you can get to that space, the research doesn't matter. Unless the research can hurt, it doesn't matter. The coup that I'm talking about then is for us all to pick up that mantle, right? To pick up that challenge and say, we have to change those systems that are, are apparently there to give us the privilege of, um, of being able to be comfortable and take us to a space of discomfort, to take us to a space where uh, we, we don't necessarily know where we're going, but we know as we link arms that we're there with people that we need to do this besides. So my, uh, my, my closing moment then is to say, uh, to thank everyone here for, for their interest in this. Thank Danny for this amazing piece of work, which will be my Bible as I'm moving forward. I'm working 
what is now the largest art institution in Canada, the Ontario College of Art and Design, working in graduate studies. And the, uh, the, the value for that, of course, will be to work with those communities that I've addressed, to bring in those students that are uh, Indigenous students, uh, 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 domestic and international students, uh, students who are coming from various places who might not otherwise be in, be in there. And, uh, and those are the voices and spaces that I think we need to, to succor and, and support. So with that, uh, and with a closing, I thank Danny for uh, an amazing piece of work. Uh, I read through that last chapter over and over again, and I thought of where, where this can go. And uh, I want to walk beside people like you uh, as we do this. So thank you all. Thank you all. Thank, um, thanks, Ashok, and thank you, Bob. Uh, when I asked you both to speak, I, of course, knew that you would be uh, fantastic. Uh, um, but yeah, I've just you know been left with a lot to think about uh, because the the book itself, as you both know, doesn't quite conclude. It sort of points at a conclusion and then says, actually, there's a, probably a number of ways that this can go, and I think we've got some new ways from both of you tonight, which is what I was looking for from, uh, from having a response. Um, but we do also have um, uh, um, mics and sort of the opportunity for a couple of questions. I think we should try and keep it... Um, uh, uh, fairly brief because it has been a lot of kind of sitting down. But if anyone has um, uh, any 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 questions they would like to raise for any of us, uh, that you you can you can do that now. Just be aware that this is also being recorded. So let us know if you would like that. Really. Um, uh, thanks, Luli. Uh, did you ask whether it's, the text has been shared? Um, yes, I believe the text is currently now in the art schools. As I said, it's, a, uh, uh, it's been ordered by the libraries. I offered on Twitter and Facebook that if anyone uh, bought it for their li ordered for, for their library and sent me the confirmation, I'd cook them a meal. Uh, so that, that, that offer still stands. So if there are any libraries out there that it's not yet on order, please, uh, please do so. Um, and as, as, I, as I mentioned, even though I'm officially not supposed to be uh, encouraging you to distribute the free version, which is circulating, it is circulating. So you know you can you can do what you need to need to with that. But um, but thanks for the support, and 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 I, and I hope that there there can be more interinstitutional dialogue around these issues as well, because I think one of the things that um, that the the, the the impulse to write the book came from teaching at Elam School of Fine Arts in the University of Auckland and trying to understand. Everyone's talking about why it was different in, you know, um, 
you know, 15 years ago before becoming really part of the university and like, what's going on? And then realizing that actually everyone everywhere was having some version of the same kind of conversation. So it just made me kind of think, well, there's something bigger that's going on than just some bad politics going on in this particular institution, right? And so I think every place is different, but there is some, you know, uh, 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 collective questions that I think we have to work on. So I hope we can do that. Thank you. I just when you're saying that something's bigger going on, I just uh, something um, triggered a, a memory to when you were describing your time in the United Nations, and I was wondering whether or not, to what extent or how deeply the uh, organisation of some of the things is, how much of this is happenstance, and how much is it like uh, has culture being used as a, as a kind of form of engineering to bring us into a, a new kind of technocratic super state of some description? Um, uh, well, that's a, <laughs> that's a really big quest question. Um, all, all I would say is that what I learned from, the, from, from I guess, doing work in, into governmental agencies is that um, most of them are extremely weak other than the ones that are oriented towards trade. So if you look at the history of UNESCO, for example, which was responsible for culture um, up until the time of the kind of, you know, um, McBride report and the New World Information Communication Order debates, um, the US and all the other kind of powerful countries pull their money out of it and put it into the World Trade Organization um, precisely to not have to deal with the cultural question. So um, I do feel like there's maybe a, um, you know, maybe culture is still this sort of like residual word, like, uh, I mean, there is a certain instrumentalization of it, but maybe culture is like a handbrake on, because the, the, the preferred um, culture of finance is a culture of no culture, right? That's why we turn everything into numbers so that it can all just sort of circulate immediately and freely around the networks. And I think what Ashok was sort of pointing to at the end is that, uh, you know, if you go into the cultural space in a particular situation, you're in a um, very specific space that you have to learn and that slows us, slows us down a lot, yeah. I think it's been a lot of talking, so unless someone's got anything else to say, I'd just like to, um, I think we'll, we'll leave it there, and I'd just like to say thanks a lot for coming along. I had no idea that there was going to be, you know, so many of you who are interested in the book and sort of, and, and the talks. I knew I invited great people along, so that might get you along. Uh, and, um, and uh, yeah, and if you can't get, if you're interested in the book and you can't get hold of it, just find me, drop me an email, and I can make sure that you can, you know, that you can get access to it. Um, it is supposed to go out there into the world now, into the, into the archive of knowledge. Um, and um, yeah, thanks. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming. Thank